withheld the truth. You are not alone in this universe. We have lived among you, hidden, but no more. If you resist us, we will destroy the world as you know it. Your world must not share the same fate as Cybertron. Whole generations lost. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. What you're about to see is top secret. Do not tell my mother. But be warned. These reviews will contain spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. This isn't my war. Not yet, but I fear it soon will be. Bob Weep Grana Weep Miniba. Today we're talking about Transformers. Not Transformers the movie, but a Transformers movie. Starring Shia LaBeouf. John Turturro, Josh Dumal, Tyrese Gibson, and Megan Fox, directed by Michael Bay. I'm Arnie, but you can email me at ladiesman217 at nowplayingpodcast.com. <laughs> Stuart in L.A. Hey, guys, and this is Jerry. And Arnie, you may call it podcasting, but I call it Jerry's Happy Place. <laughs> so we are talking Transformers. It took... 21 years to get back in theaters for the Transformers. I guess everyone remembered the last movie. No, I disagree. I think this could have come out 10 years prior if technology had been ready. I think it took this long for them to figure out how to make a live-action Transformers movie look right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Transformers got back into popularity in the mid-90s with Beast Wars, and then come 2000, there was another transforming robots into cars and planes TV series, and it really had its following really ever since then. And I think it was just getting the right script and who was going to do it and what would you do with Transformers? And like Stu, like you said, how do you make it not look stupid, talking robots that transform into things? And they got Michael Bay to direct. Now, this is now playing's first Michael Bay film. Me too. <laughs> Really? And not just now playing's first time with Michael Bay. I popped my cherry too, guys. This is my first Michael Bay movie experience. I've never seen the man's work. I kind of feel bad because oftentimes on now playing, I will kind of say I prefer a Michael Bay-esque aesthetic. I quote Armageddon as a pinnacle of pacing sometimes. So I'm kind of looking forward to the chance to explain what I mean and the things that I like about Bay's work, because I feel Transformers, as we're going to discuss, is very much a Michael Bay film in every way. I think I've seen every Michael Bay film but one. That said... You're not going to tell us which one? <laughs> we're on the edge of our seats, Arnie. Was it Pearl Harbor? I have not seen The Island. Oh. See, that's the only one I would be interested to see. 
That's the only one that looks like it was compelled by story. Like there was an interesting plot there, or at least a plot there. I feel like I've never seen his movies because I've never liked what he's going after. Like I feel like Michael Bay is a really divisive figure in movies. Like I think people drop his name as a way of describing a whole school of thought. And when you say Michael Bay to me, without having seen any of his work, that says to me it's... Action upon action, very little attention to story, hyper-editing, paper-thin characters, climax atop climax. That's what I thought a Michael Bay movie was. And usually it's said very disparaging, but I want to point out here, not only is Michael Bay at the helm, but there's a much more familiar name here as well. It's Spielberg. Spielberg's producing this picture. It's a partnership. I definitely will comment on some Spielbergian things I saw as well. Yeah, it is Definitely Steven Spielberg, who wanted Michael Bay to do this movie, and Michael Bay at first wasn't certain about it. The property, it's a toy. You know, it actually uh, required a trip to Hasbro for him to understand the property or to really fall in love with the concept of doing a movie about it. There's a term used called Bayformers. You know, if you want to talk about the movie universe of Transformers and the much different look that Transformers has here versus any other cartoon comic or what have you, it's the Bayformers. I mean, when you say that, he's like, oh, yeah, that's the Bayformer version. And as a big fan... I really allowed myself to learn as much about this movie as possible. I tried to see what all the characters were going to look like, and I walked into the theater lowering my expectations to, well, let's just see what he does. This couldn't possibly be any good, but, you know, I'll reveal my thoughts as we get going, but the look of the Transformers is so different, and it's really got his stamp all over it. That'll always be the Bayformers, his take and his take alone. Where I was introduced to him was with his first feature film. Of course, I've seen dozens of his music videos, but Bad Boys in the 90s. I loved that movie. And it was definitely high octane. But you say paper thin characters. I actually thought it had some really good, funny characterizations. I stand by it's the best Martin Lawrence film to date. Take that, Big Mama's house. (laughs) And then with The Rock and Armageddon, Armageddon was one that I saw in theaters, really enjoyed. Then came Pearl Harbor and Bad Boys 2. And anything he's done basically this century, I didn't like, which is why I didn't go see The Island. The Transformers, when it came out, I was actually at a Hasbro private press demonstration for this movie because... A demonstration with, like, picket signs (laughs) and pitchforks? No, where they were trying to basically get us to hype the film. As part of the Star Wars Action News podcast, I go to Toy Fair every year, have a press conference with Hasbro, and they're, like, showing us footage that hadn't been seen so that we can go out there, toys that hadn't been seen, and sell this movie for them. And I kind of looked at it like, eh... But then I was shopping for home theaters, and this had just come out on Blu-ray. And I was at a home theater store, and the demo they showed was the scene here where the chopper transformer attacks the military base. And I'm like, not only does this have the best picture and sound I've ever seen in a home theater, but it actually looks like a good movie. And so I saved it for my very first Blu-ray home theater movie. But Jerry, why don't you start us off with a plot summary? If a Michael Bay movie can be said to have a plot. All right. Well, Transformers begins with a voiceover telling us about the Cube. It's the creator of worlds and specifically the race of transforming robots from Cybertron. The Cube has great powers and the two warring factions, the Autobots and Decepticons, are in search for it. The film then takes us to Qatar where we meet Captain Lennox and his team who are ambushed by a transforming robot helicopter who is trying to steal data from the U.S. military network. He's unsuccessful but slaughters the base, leaving only Lennox and his team to find help. 
Meanwhile, in suburbia, we meet Sam Witwicky. Sam is an 11th grader with his mind on the usual things, getting a car and getting a chick. He surely finds himself in possession of an old 1970s Camaro, who we learn is the Autobot Bumblebee. Bumblebee is sent to watch over Sam because of an heirloom of his great-great-grandfather's 1895 Arctic Circle expedition in which he encounters the Decepticon leader Megatron. The heirloom is Archibald Wickwicky's glasses that have the coordinates of the cube's location imprinted onto them. After a Decepticon attack on Sam, he hooks up with the film's hottie Michaela and they are rescued by Bumblebee and taken to meet the rest of the Autobots led by Optimus Prime. Prime explains who the Decepticons are and what they want with the cube, which is properly called the AllSpark. Optimus Prime asks Sam to get them the glasses so they can locate the cube first. Sam and Michaela are then taken into custody by Agent Simmons and the top-secret government agency Sector 7. They are eventually taken to Hoover Dam, where Sector 7 is housing Megatron and the AllSpark. Megatron breaks free of his cryogenic state and begins going after the cube. However, Sam, Michaela, and Bumblebee take the cube as Lennox and his team escort them to Mission City to arrange for a military pickup of the AllSpark. By this time, a full team of Decepticons track it to the city and engage in an all-out battle against the Autobots. Sam makes a last-ditch effort to run away with the cube, but is hunted down by Megatron. Megatron, however, is stopped by Optimus Prime. They go a few rounds until Megatron is destroyed when Sam pushes the AllSpark into his chest. The remains of the Decepticons are hidden in the depths of the ocean, Sector 7 is shut down, and the Autobots watch as Sam and Michaela make out on the hood of Bumblebee. Roll credits. All right, so you explained a few things there for me, Jerry, that I didn't quite get out of this whole thing. So I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. But when we start out, it starts out with this big monologue about the cube. The cube can fill worlds with life. Very 2001, I thought. Instead of a monolith, we have a cube. It's a life creator. It's their god, as it were. I don't know anything about Transformers. Is this an original concept? Is this something you could have bought of Toya before Michael Bay? You know, as a all-spark, like, this is the big cube that has granted everything life. Not really, but I guess you could argue that the original Generation 1 cartoon had this thing called Vector Sigma that gave all the Autobots their life and their personality, but it's a much different type of concept. It's not the creator of worlds. It didn't even necessarily sound like that this thing was exclusive to creating Transformers, yet it seems like it only has power over machines and robots, but I'd say it's fairly unique, maybe just ever so inspired by some minor concepts in previous series. But to me, this was very new. I was confused because at the beginning, he specifically says, The Cube. But later on, they're talking about the AllSpark. Why don't they just call it the AllSpark? There's not an answer to that. I mean, you're right. They made it at the beginning very encrypted, like, this is the cube. I mean, you know, it could be a Rubik's Cube for all I know. But I mean, yeah, we don't get the proper name until later. I'm not sure why. I mean, they're one of the same. I don't think there was meant to be uh, any confusion. It was just... Uh, I don't know, maybe at the beginning he was just trying to speak more poetically or uh, in sci-fi. I, I don't know. I don't know. That didn't make a lot of sense to me either. I can give you an answer to that because if I was watching this opening and they were calling it the AllSpark, I wouldn't make the connection that the cube was something called an AllSpark. I would be looking for something sparking <laughs> to be called the AllSpark. You see, I was confused later on when they said we need to find the AllSpark. I'm like, is that a shard of the cube, a sparking shard of the cube? And so when at the end they show this giant cube, I'm like, oh, wait, it's all the same MacGuffin? Okay. Honestly, that confused me in this watching. Well, and the whole concept of a spark, I think, did come up with like Beast Wars or something to where that 
kind of represented the life force within each Transformer. Like, I think uh, Optimus Prime even uses the term, like, the spark in my chest, to where that, like, represents the essence of their life. They were originally actually just going to call this The Matrix, you know, as a reference to, you know, what we saw in the last film, in the Generation 1, Season 3, the Autobot Matrix of Leadership. But, of course, the film, The Matrix, uh, actually sort of changed their mind, which is interesting considering what we see in the next movie. But either way, this all spark was going to be, like, The Matrix-type item. Well, whatever you call it, I got a little confused from the get-go because I took it to mean it was God, that it was the creator of their world and that it was kind of omniscient, like it had an intelligence to it. But really, it's just a device. It's used by other people. It's a magic wand. It isn't the wizard, right? You're right. The way Optimus describes it in the opening monologue, it's this cube created us, and we owe our existence to this cube. But then later on, obviously everyone's just sitting there looking at it and using it when they want to, and Megatron's trying to get it so he can use it. So you're right. It just seems like a tool. So that's probably one of the first things I'll put on a list of, hey, this doesn't make a lot of sense. This is a little inconsistent between point A and point B. <laughs> hey, I'm just trying to see where the boundaries are. I know that we're going to play real <laughs> loose with rules and why things are the way they are. I'm not going to ask a lot of questions, Arnie, like all spark and cue, because I know I don't think I'm going to get good answers. But what I'm wanting to know right from the get-go is, is this all spark a thinking entity, or is it a tool? And from the start, I thought it was making the voyage to Earth by choice, that it had chosen to leave Cybertron and was falling to Earth as a choice to escape. And why is it falling? Why does it leave Cybertron? That's a very interesting question. And unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because the film, obviously, as a standalone movie, doesn't go into this. But if you read some of the prequel materials, in particular the trade paperback comics, they describe how the Autobots actually send the cube off so that Megatron can't get his hands on it. But then... And the comic doesn't even really describe this very well. Once they send it off, Megatron goes after it. So the Autobots decide, hey, we got to go find it first. Which to me is ridiculous because they're the ones that just sent it off. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, bad idea because I guess Megatron's just going to follow it. We should go find it first. And it's just, okay, I, get, I guess that fits comic book logic, but it was done as a defensive move. It's like we put a stamp on the envelope, but we didn't write an address. <laughs> we sent it somewhere. Okay, well, all right. Let, let me take this a step further. The whole setup just left me going, okay, I'm just going to go with it, but you're not really telling me anything. Megatron deceived us. And <laughs> how? Why? What? He went and found the cube. Again, when? Why? Huh? <laughs> it's just, you're telling me nothing, but words are coming out of your vocoder. I'm confused, <laughs> but I'm going with it. It's set up. I'm just like, all right, I'm going to give it its first five minutes. You know, Rock's famous for saying he'll give a movie its premise. Well, I guess I have to give this a lot of setup. So I was willing to give it its entire nonsensical prologue to get to the movie. Uh, absolutely. I'm here to have fun. I'm not going to nitpick a backstory about another world. We're here on Earth. And frankly, I'm kind of glad about that because my complaint about the last Transformers movie was that even though we were on Earth, it didn't feel like an Earth I knew. And here, instantly, once we get past this prologue, I can recognize this as a place that I share with other human beings. There's actually people in this story now, and I think, for me, that helps. But the people we're first introduced to are a bunch of jarheads on a chopper. Now, this is the first of the Bay tropes that I will talk about. Bay 
knows that in an action film, we don't necessarily care about the characters and that we're there for not necessarily deep character exploration. One of the things I think he really did was find our iconic character types and bring them out and give them the flimsiest motivations that we've already seen a million times. This guy has a new baby he hasn't seen. He wants to get home to the baby. This guy is the funny one. This guy is the serious one. He's not going to waste a lot of time. He's going to tell us in shorthand, these are characters you've seen before in other movies. Now you know who they are. Let's get to work. And I kind of appreciate that sort of efficiency. If you're not going to do something novel, then don't do anything. Let's just have our archetypes and go. But where does that end? (laughs) I'm with you, Arnie. I agree. If these aren't really important characters, if they're not meant to be thought-provoking people who have conflicts and anguish and dimension, then yeah, there's the guy from New Orleans that likes to eat gators. There's the black guy that likes to take pictures. And there's the white guy that has the baby girl he hasn't seen back home. I get it. That's all I need to know. But it's not going to make me like them. <laughs> I guess there's a difference between sympathy and understanding. You're just supposed to know who they are. But I don't know in a Bay film that you ever are supposed to care beyond their motivations. He has a baby. I'm supposed to like babies. Therefore, he must get home because that's how it is. Yeah, I do feel like there's a very adolescent shorthand going on here that gets you to understand it. And maybe that's the right approach because these are based on toys and we're all trying to channel our inner 12-year-old here. That's what we're here to do. So it's not a criticism, but I want to point out I am not connecting with these jarheads at all. You know, as an excuse to just tell the robot's story, Arnie, I'm kind of with you, I think – these characters play the role they need to play. I'm not watching this movie because I want to get into somebody's head about whatever is going on in their life. I think the base premise is enough for me to actually care about them as much as I want to care about them here. And it's, to me, just impressive from a Transformer fan perspective that there are some humans who are military over here and there are some other humans in suburbia over here. And this conflict is so great that it's impacting both types of people. Sam has no clue of the real world type things that the army folks are experiencing. And in the cartoons, it's always just a handful of teenagers or young children who like witness everything. So I like how big these people make the world in this conflict feel. By the same token, it feels like Bay's kind of relying on what he's done before. In Armageddon, you have your NASA folk who are the ones trained to deal with things, dealing with the non-professional drillers, the rogues who go after it. The same way here, we've got the army folk dealing with the hackers and the suburbanites. It, It kind of feels like Bay's done this before, and since he's coming into this unfamiliar world of Transformers to him, he's making it very familiar. And right here, I'm feeling like this could be an outtake from Armageddon. The score, I'm liking the score, but it sounds just like Armageddon. The characters seem just like the characters from Armageddon to me in that, like Stuart said, shorthand and, all right, this is who they are. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time with them or on them. So moving on. Oh, wait, here comes a chopper to blow shit up. This is ten times cooler than Armageddon, I swear to God. (laughs) I don't know about that. Is that a quote or an advocation? (laughs) 
that's a quote for the movie. Oh, just that's clear, right. Yeah. That is a quote from yeah. the movie. A snarky, too self-referential quote that I didn't like. But here's what I'm going to get at. I get it. We're here for the action scene that's about to transpire. And you know what? It's actually kind of great. When that chopper shows up and it's a ghost ship that was shot down three months prior. And we know it's going to be a Decepticon that's going to transform and kick ass. I'm excited. I think this is a great, well-constructed scene. But what transpires here? What do the Decepticons do by blowing up a base in Qatar that they are better off for doing? I want to agree with you, Stuart. I love the action of this. Like I said, this scene is what sold me on seeing the movie. I think it is exciting. I do want to say, though, I'm loving the scene because it did something that I don't feel the cartoon movie or the cartoon itself ever did. It's really giving me a sense of scale of this Transformer. I'm really going, wow, he's big. Wow, he's tough. Instantly, I am sold on the giant robot thing. I'm thinking Mech Warrior because he's stomping on two feet along a base blowing things up, but I am buying it and liking it. If Bay is to be taken at his word, I have not really watched a lot of Bay interview or commentary, but I was at Comic-Con in 2006 when he came to talk about this. He was bragging, boasting, really, about the fact that they designed Transformers that would actually be the correct size if you were able to unfold them the way that these vehicles unfold, that they're to scale. Is that true, Jerry? Do you have any evidence to support or disclaim that? I've heard Michael Bay say the same things, like in particular with Optimus Prime. You know, Optimus Prime's never been a long-nosed semi, but Michael Bay said that, well, he kind of had to be because I needed him to be 28 foot tall, and I couldn't get that out of a normal flat front semi. So I think a lot of thought did go into the animation. And for instance, we never saw Starscream, like, really standing next to any of the Autobots. If they had, I think Starscream would have been 10 times larger because he's a fighter jet versus Mm -hmm. a Camaro. But you, you get that thought mm-hmm. that, yep, they're much bigger based on the type of vehicle they are. So they might have cheated it a little, but Arnie, to your point, it does at least hold weight that these giant machines could still end up being impressive as giant robots. That when they transform, they are just as impressive as when they are in the vehicles. I also have questions about what the Decepticons are trying to do. Jerry, maybe you can answer this for me. You said in the plot summary, you know, the Decepticons are attacking military bases to find the AllSpark, while Bumblebee is stalking a teenage boy. So, what? Here's the thing. I put this in the category of things I don't quite understand about the movie, because I don't understand why the Autobots seem to have more information about Sam without hacking military networks, but... That opening scene is just clearly, what's he trying to accomplish? Well, he fails at what he's trying to accomplish. He's hacking the network, he's starting to get in, and they foil the plot. So he just, I guess for lack of better words, he just eliminates all the evidence, all the witnesses. So he fails. So let me be to the point. The best way to find out information about an Antarctic expedition nearly a 100 years ago is to break into a base in Qatar? <laughs> No comment. And th- here's the thing. <laughs> I'm going to give you guys a tip. Every time I ask a question that you don't have an answer to, just tell me to roll out. Like, that's just tell me roll <laughs> out, and I will know what that means, and I will keep going. These questions have to be asked, even if there are no answers. I'm on the same page as you, Stuart, because first, I was very intrigued by the scene. Why is he attacking? Obviously, Decepticon, Decepticon evil. We don't know why. They just mm-hmm. are. It's toys. And he's attacking the base. It's very exciting. But I'm on it. Like, what's he trying to do? I don't think, correct me if either of you took this the other way, I don't think anybody knows that the AllSpark landed in the Arctic and that 
Archibald Wiki founded in the Arctic, I think that through their different means discover this the decepticons just know megatron and the cube are somewhere on earth they don't know where and so they're just hacking any data network one failing that i would say that this movie has is it is so americanized michael bay in most of his films brings in different ethnicities different nationalities why did it in qatar it have to be a u.s base why couldn't they attack you know a russian base a british base this whole film feels very americanized and in that way even though we're supposedly in qatar it makes the movie feel smaller to me hey america's everywhere don't you know we have a flag in every port i agree with you it is u.s centric and i don't know if that's a flaw or not but again i feel like the larger question is not why is bay focused on america but why are the Transformers focused on America? If the AllSmart could be anywhere, why do they think the U.S. government is shielding it? Roll out. Okay. <laughs> and again, the prequel comics set up a little bit that this Sector 7 organization that we'll talk about later does some things to try to lure them in, like exposing some amount of energy of the cube just to clue them in on it so that they can actually capture them. But then, of course, they realize, hey, these are things like we've never seen, far more powerful, way more of them than we thought. So, yeah, your guys' point's very valid. But again, I guess this early in the movie, I just let it go. It's just the way the Decepticons figure to go after the problem, whereas the Autobots have a more civil way of piecing together two plus two, I guess. And it seems to mirror the filmmakers themselves. Arnie, you said this is Bay redoing what he did with Armageddon. Well, don't forget the same summer that Armageddon come out, Spielberg produced Deep Impact, the more human asteroid movie, the one about the characters experiencing the peril. And I think that's why we also have this storyline with Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf, let's talk about him. I don't mind him. I have forgiven him that fourth indie film. (laughs) (laughs) We still haven't covered Indiana Jones that are now playing. I don't think we should reveal our hand too much on that. Maybe one day. I'll reveal this hand unless they do something to apologize for that fourth film. I I cannot end a series on that down a note. But but I actually kind of like Shia. I think he's a good kind of everyman for the younger generation. He's one of the few, you know, of the whole Disney milk-fed kids that I've enjoyed in the movies I've seen him, from iRobot to Disturbia to Eagle Eye. Wow, see, and here I was, thought I would be the one to have to defend this guy. Yeah, I don't mind him either. I feel like he gets a lot of flack, and I know why. Indiana Jones! No, no, absolutely (laughs) not. This guy has gotten a lot of breaks, and nobody's quite sure why. I mean, why did Spielberg take such a shine to him to put him in Disturbia, Indy 4, this movie? I mean, this guy went from 0 to 150, all because he impressed Spielberg for unknown reasons. But I think he's fine. I think he's got pretty good comedic timing. And if anything, he kind of reminds me of a really young Tom Hanks. Yeah, personally, I was very skeptical about him going into this because I only knew him from Even Stevens, the Disney show that he was on for years, and just knew about this movie called Holes that I never saw. But apparently it was fairly well received, I guess, in theaters. And I didn't know what to expect out of him. But after his first scene, I thought he was going to be fine. But I was nervous about the writing for the character of Sam Witwicky. I mean, I am super annoyed by, you know, when he's talking to his teacher and he said, well, ask yourself this, um, what would Jesus do? And I'm just like, that is like the stupidest 
thing, and the movie's filled with these, by the way, in my opinion, but I, I can separate that from Shia. That's not his fault. I think he delivered things well. I think he played off of the robots that weren't even there pretty well, and, you know, even the indie thing, like you said, I don't blame that on him. <laughs> you know, if the greatest actor in the world, whoever you consider that to be, was trying to be that mutt, whatever his character was, it still would have been a stupid place to take indie. So, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with him in this role, and if you compare him to the Spike Witwicky from the TV show, that kid was a little awkward and a little bit older, I guess, and, you know, working with his dad in a uh, hard hat sort of way. But still, I can see the parallel there. It was fine. It was a fine casting job. And here's where I really feel, though, the Spielberg comes in, is in the Shia bit. And unfortunately, I'm a man in my 30s. I'm not a teenage boy. I'm not a preteen boy. And watching a lot of these scenes... I was taken back to the movies I liked as a preteen boy, Goonies, Gremlins, mm-hmm. all of these scenes, the stuff we talked about in our donation series, Stuart and Jaws and Poltergeist, Poltergeist itself, some of these scenes reminded me of in the family dynamic and all of it. It was a weird marriage of Spielbergian sentimentality about suburbia with Michael Bay's rapid fire montage. I'm going to put a dog in a cast because I can kind of style. Oh, absolutely. The relationship between Sam and Bumblebee feels not dissimilar from Elliot and E.T. I mean, it really is about a boy and his special friend that nobody else can see. It is a redo of Spielberg's E.T. for part of it. And then you got all the Bay noise surrounding it. It's a strange marriage. And so far, at least, it's kind of working for me. I think some of these early scenes are pretty good. I also saw E.T. a little bit later. But yeah, my problem was I wasn't connecting with it. It becomes worse later, but right now... I'm remembering movies like it that I liked, but here I'm not clicking with the character. And I think part of that is his primary driving motivation is the car and the babe, right? But that's relatable. I mean, I think that that's actually a Spielberg touch is that what does a teenage boy want in his life at that point? What's more important to him than his freedom, which is represented by a car and all of that comes with it? I think that was a great character trait to have to introduce us to what is easily the most relatable storyline in this movie. I think the movie does an interesting job of taking almost a throwaway part with Sam talking to the football player by the lake and like, hey, didn't you try for the football team? They had that little snapshot. It's clear that Sam is trying to fit in or, you know, I can just see in the back of Sam's mind, like, oh, if I get on the football team, then the girls will like me and this Michaela girl will actually finally know my name. And so you do build this simple story of a boy who's just trying to fit in and find these things. And it was football before. Now it's the car. I get the car. I can go to the lake and the girls are going to love me. Yeah, Sam is absolutely average. He's not even a nerd because he's not smart. He's barely passing his classes and that conflict comes up here. It's more of just like he's unexceptional in every way. And his way of being exceptional is to have a really cool car. I think that's a cool story point. It is relatable, and I'm going with it in these early scenes, and I get a big smile on my face when his dad takes him to buy the car. First of all, the Porsche (laughs) scene, you know, kind of amusing, because my parents did the same thing to me. My mother rolled up in a Mercedes. I'm like, you bought me a Mercedes? She's like, no, this is for me. (laughs) (laughs) But Bernie Mac shows up. I love Bernie Mac. I get a big smile on my face. This may be my favorite scene in the film, even if I don't understand what I'm watching. (laughs) 
Agreed and agreed. I like Bernie Mac a lot. I watched his show from time to time. I think he is a very charming entertainer. I do miss him. I was surprised that this was it. That this was his scene. That he is in no other part of this movie. I thought we were setting up a major supporting character who would come into play and that maybe Sam would bring the car back when it starts acting wonky and they would discover together that it was a Transformer. Why do we have this scene? You know, Stuart, one thing that I feel the same way, because the trailer for this movie focused on Bernie's line where he says the, the driver doesn't pick the car, the car picks the driver. And it seemed in that scene, it's like so philosophical, like he was the Obi-Wan Kenobi that was trying to connect him to the Transformers and how he can, yeah. like, you're the chosen one, Sam, the car's going to pick you. It's just like, no, this is just clown comedy. And Bernie Mac is awesome in the scene and does everything the scene needs, but... I don't know why it's portrayed. There's a lot about this scene that I think is out of place for the movie. And I kind of wish it wasn't there. Like, this would have been a funny scene in another movie, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a great introduction to a character that needs to come back and do other things in the story. To your point, the car picks the driver. Do we witness that happen? Because right when the scene starts, we see the Camaro drive by. And I'm wondering, is that a car and Bumblebee sees it and emulates it? Or was that actually Bumblebee showing up? That was Bumblebee showing up, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. That was Bumblebee showing up because you already see the Autobot symbol. There's clearly not a driver in the car. But yeah, I think we're led to believe that Bumblebee has arrived. He's following Sam. And we kind of see that, again, prequel things, which obviously isn't to the credit of the film. But in the video game, you're finding Sam, blah, blah, blah. You played the video game for this review. I am impressed, Jerry. (laughs) Well, uh, off note, I actually played it a couple years ago, but I remember it. Yeah. (laughs) But jumping ahead just a little bit, I want to stress this. Bumblebee could be anything that he wanted to. He is not limited into transforming out of this embodiment of the Camaro. Because later, when he's put down as being a beater, he sees a newer Camaro and, like, magic. He becomes a bitching Camaro. (laughs) Yeah, he becomes the bitching Camaro. So my guess is that he just chose this randomly and showed up at the dealership. Had the dad bought a Porsche, he would have been a Porsche, right? Well, why not be a Porsche? I mean, <laughs> why not be something, I don't know, you know, I, I, because GM is funding this movie. <laughs> I mean, I get that part. It's how I knew who the good guys were from the bad guys. They're all American cars. <laughs> well, in part of what supplemented the budget for this movie was GM supplying all the cars, the military providing Michael Bay the ability to shoot their actual items, which Michael Bay is very proud of, by the way. You know, and the commentary even makes the comments like, well, my stuff looks so real because I've got the Pentagon's phone number. I'm just like, wow. <laughs> I'm glad Michael Bay is proud of this. That makes one of us. But I said in the last podcast, I grew up with Transformers. It makes no sense to have Bumblebee be a Camaro. I'm not going to hold to the fact that you can't change things. I understand there's licensing rights. And in fact, Volkswagen said we're not going to have our new piece love Volkswagen smash stuff. I get it. You couldn't do it. Okay. But it doesn't make sense to have a bug Camaro, you know? Bumblebee was a bug because he was a bug! Well, he's yellow and black, and he has an air freshener that says biatch on it, so (laughs) they tried. I mean, I didn't know that, so you're telling me Bumblebee is actually a VW Beetle? Yeah, I mean, what would have actually made more sense if you wanted to connect this back to earlier folklore is for Bumblebee to have been the car that Jazz was, the Pontiac Solstice, because Jazz is really the small guy. 
He's the smallest one, the smallest car. And that was the role that Bumblebee always plays. He's the little guy. He's not the great fighter. He's just got a lot of heart, a lot of courage, and really can support the team. But he's not the guy you send out there to go duke it out with Barricade, like we see in the movie. Let me guess. He's popular with the kids. Oh, yeah. He was always the point of view Transformer, I remember, from the cartoon. He's the one that buddied with Spike Witwicky in Generation 1. But, you know, guys, this is funny. One of the reasons I really connected with a little bit with this is because my first car was a Camaro. And although I don't get why Bumblebee's a Camaro, I'm just so glad he was <laughs> because I love Camaros. <laughs> and obviously, that was the car that GM was getting ready to push big time. So, hey, it worked. I know that there are at least five Bumblebees in my shithole town. So, good job. You sold a lot of yellow Camaros. <laughs> the one thing I don't get about this scene is Bernie Mac's entire inventory is destroyed, so he lowers his price. Wouldn't he be calling the cops not lowering his price? Well, roll out, Arnie. This scene doesn't work. <laughs> okay. This scene doesn't work. Rolling out. How does he sell the car? He doesn't have a title for the car. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It makes as much sense as his mother giving him the finger from across the lawn. I feel like so much of this is about we're doing comedy and everything is fast-paced and silly and i just don't know that mr bay has a good handle on comedy and you're just supposed to go with it because if you aren't laughing along with it you're probably scratching your head and i was kind of doing both at this moment i think bay does good comedy bad boys was the 90s beverly hills cop it was as much comedy as action to me Armageddon has its very funny moments this is how you deal with russian space stations <laughs> <laughs> Where's the comedy come from? Because when I listen to the commentary for this movie, Michael Bay's like, hey, I just thought it'd be funny to have a chihuahua and a cast because, you know, that's funny. People laugh. That's Bay. The other movies, <laughs> yeah. like... The script writers wrote a funny script or like, where's the comedy coming from? Because I think in the next movie, we're going to see comedy not work. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in this movie, frankly, but in these early scenes, I was kind of going along with it in spirit. It felt enough Spielberg relatable boy and his alien for me to just kind of go with. And even though I don't still have connected to these Transformer worlds, I don't quite understand them. I get it enough to go along and be entertained. I'm on the same boat. Here's my feeling for this whole first hour. I'm enjoying it, but wish there was less of it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes. It's like a very decent meal, not a great meal, but it's a decent meal that's just too big of a serving. And so you find yourself <laughs> choking down on those last bites. And so I was enjoying Bernie Mac. I thought there was comedy here. I laughed when the grandma gave the finger. It's funny when old people curse. So especially deaf old people signing curses. It's funny. I kind of went, aw, at the chihuahua with the cast. I mean, it's cute. It's not really smart, but it's cute. But this whole thing goes on for too long, and a lot of it is focused on Michaela, played by Megan Fox. How do we feel about her? <laughs> I was going to say, where are you going with this? <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for another something to grab. <laughs> I don't want to be the first one to show up to the party. <laughs> Megan Fox, are, are we all just going to agree she's hot and just put that on the table? She is very attractive. I'm actually going to rephrase that and say... That's all that she has. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. That, I'm going to agree. She is great for a magazine cover. The scene where she's like leaning up against the car, back arched, arms on the hood. That's great if you want to sell me a copy of Popular Mechanics. That's exactly what I thought. It was the best car commercial <laughs> of that year was her doing that. But yes, where is the character? I mean, don't tell me that she just needs to be hot. She's supposed to be a juvenile delinquent who's helped her dad 
commit Grand Theft Auto. She's got to tell us that she's in love with Shia LaBeouf. I mean, she has an acting challenge here. It may not be a deep role, but she's got a challenge and she does not need it at all. She has as much life behind her eyes as a blow-up doll. Honestly. <laughs> See, now, guys, I go into this a little bit different. I don't think she's a great actress by any stretch of imagination. Don't hear that here, but I think she gave this role all it needed. I think the whole lack of love connection between her and Sam is just a failure in the script and the plot. There's not an opportunity for it to happen other than the fact that they've experienced all this stuff together. They grab their hands a little bit at that scene where all the Autobots are landing because, you know, it looks like asteroids and meteorites are going to hit the Earth. What else you do? Sam's the only guy here. So I think the movie failed to really bring her character to life. But she was as, oh, you think I'm shallow, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think we all do. She's, <laughs> she, she brought as much to it as I think she needed to. I mean, I'm not seeing her in anything else, though. <laughs> I'll say this, Jerry. She brought to it all she had. But I don't think she brought all that was needed. I have seen her in something else because she's hot. I gave her the benefit of the doubt and watched Jennifer's body. Oh, dude. Yeah. Yeah. That's a badge of shame I shall wear forever. I saw part of it. I turned it off. I wish I had. I decided to stick it out so I could review it for our Facebook page. It's terrible. She's terrible. She is terrible. And you know what? I've often wondered why somebody so young and hot would be with somebody so old and washed up as Brian Austin Green. Not that Brian Austin Green's any older than I am, but I'm too old for Megan Fox, okay? So why is she with him? Because she doesn't want someone with more talents than her. <laughs> <laughs> so she found Brian Austin Green. Do you remember his rap album? I do. Yeah, wow. So <laughs> One Stop Carnival. <laughs> <laughs> so honestly, all she has going for her <laughs> is her looks. And I read an interview with her about how she didn't want to return for three because on two, Michael Bay just treated her like meat and only oiled her up and things. That's all you're good for. I'm sorry, but you can't act. You're not smart. And other than your tits, I don't know why Sam is interested in you. You give me nothing. <laughs> I agree with everything that you're saying, although I would probably dial it down by 10. But yes, I agree. <laughs> it's not an outrage, but it's too bad that they couldn't find someone that's hot and funny or hot and believable. <laughs> I mean, I do feel like she's in this movie enough. She's with him side by side in enough of this that she needs to be comparable. She needs to be as good as Shia, and she's not. Well, and, and Arnie, you hit an interesting point at the tail end of that that, again, I think is a failure of the movie. I don't get why Sam's into her. I mean – his buddy Miles is 10 times smarter by saying, hey, forget her. She's a jock concubine. It's like, yeah, you're right. I mean, <laughs> Sam needs to realize this, especially after that conversation that, yeah, we've been going to school together since second grade. I'm in like six of your classes. Oh, oh, Sam, Sam. Oh, you think I'm shout? It's like, I think I would dump her out of the car right then and there. I mean, the movie really fails to tell me why these two connect other than the fact that he finds her attractive. Your last statement there is dead on. Yeah, I just never got, other than she's hot, why I want Shia to get with her. And in fact, yeah, that scene where she doesn't even know him and everything, I'm like, in fact, I want him to find somebody better. I want this to be like Teen Wolf, where she's the hot bitch that he gets rid of at the end for the more dumpy but nicer girl. Or that she reveals a side of herself that makes her more than she appears to be. I mean, if that's a theme of the movie, you know, more than meets the eye, let's have her be more than what meets the eye. And she's not. <laughs> she's exactly what meets the eye. <laughs> exactly. Her dramatic moment where we find out that her dad steals cars and she helped him 
him. It has all the weight of Phoebe Cates telling Zach Galligan that her dad died on Christmas, <laughs> dressing up as Santa and getting stuck in the chimney tree. I mean, you gotta do better than that. And don't tell me it's all the writing. It's not all the writing. The writing is what it is. It is juvenile. But you need to have someone that can match Shia's energy and sell us on your real likability. Your inner beauty. And I don't see that light shining. I don't see the all spark inside <laughs> of her. I mean, Bay has never had great females in his films. I think, honestly, the best was Taya Leone in Bad Boys. But here, Megan Fox is making Liv Tyler look like Meryl Streep. And that's saying something. The one thing the movie does for this is it gives us no other girls, though. <laughs> that is true. You root for them to get together because there's no other option. And you're right. The thing that went through my mind is, is that she has that moment with the football player, I guess, whatever, and actually you can kind of see that she's on this path to be a little less shallow. She has a little bit of darkness in her past with her juvie record, blah, blah, blah. Not that big of a deal, but there is no other girl focused in the movie to take your attention off of her. So it's really all you can think about is that, oh yeah, let's see them get together. Oh, come on, Jerry. They have the Star of Man thing here <laughs> in the movie's third storyline. <laughs> but Sam never meets her, though. They're not in school together. <laughs> well, we should probably bring in the hackers at this point. They do all meet. They do all go to Hoover Dam, and we'll talk about why in a little bit. <laughs> Will we? For the final damn fight. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but can you believe it? Someone actually got out of Man-Thing alive. I could not believe it. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, she looks familiar to me. <laughs> I had to look it up afterwards, because I'm like, she's obviously much more polished here. You know, there's a lot more money to make her look much better than she did in Man-Thing. But yeah. And she was allowed to bring her Aussie accent. <laughs> Yes. Instead of that southern drawl, that's what threw me, is she spoke Australian. <laughs> <laughs> Why would the Pentagon trust an Aussie with their top secrets and <laughs> encoding? Just going to throw that out there. Should I roll out? I, I actually will go with that. I would actually think the Aussies might be underplayed compared to the Asians and the Indians. But yeah, I could see it being a multinational task force of the biggest brains in the world. I'll go with that. Okay. I don't know why they're all 19. Of course, they tell me they're hiring right out of high school now. Yeah, because we want the uneducated. <laughs> and what frat party or mixer do you think she met Anthony Anderson at that would make them forge to be the friends that were allegedly asked to believe that they are? Is that the one where he was putting roofies and date raping some of the people at the party? <laughs> That would be the actor, Anthony Anderson. I don't know about his character, who was Glint. Let me tell you, we talked about Anthony Anderson in Scream 4. Here we have our second Anthony Anderson movie of the year. And he's just as good. <laughs> and I want to know why he's this genius hacker that the NSA has chosen not to hire, but he's also the most stereotypical black man on film. Well, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there. I don't feel like any portrayal of blacks, including jazz, is particularly progressive. <laughs> jazz is black? Yeah, he's like their black transformer. <laughs> he's voiced by, uh, and this really surprised me, I, I don't have his name in front of me, but he was the older boy in the Family Matters show, the, the Winslow boy. Yeah. When, when I looked that oh. up, I was like, are you freaking kidding? He does voiceover work? <laughs> <laughs> and lucky to get it. Oh, Darius McCrary. I know him. There 
is so much jive here. All they needed was Lou Gossett, really, to finish it out. I feel like there's a whole lot of jive. Bernie Mac comes on, he sasses his mother. Anthony Anderson sassing his mother. And the only one that's not is Tyrese, and he has no role, really, other than to take the photo. Yeah, I'm sorry, but... I just couldn't stand. This is when the movie started to sour. The meal started to turn a little rancid. Get off my grandma's carpet. She don't like nobody on the carpet, especially the police. Yeah. No, Anthony Anderson has a great habit of making everything he's in terrible. This film (laughs) had an opportunity to really streamline this portion of the story. You didn't need Maggie to have to take that to some other guy so they could get arrested and then connect back to Secretary of Defense. I mean, they had that scene where she snuck in the office. You could have established, hey, I think this is alien. Here's my proof. Look at this with me. And you could have taken Maggie from there. You did not need all that stupidity. I really wish that was cut out. Streamline is such a great word here because you're right. In writing, when you do a first draft of something, you go back and you go, what are the excesses of where I'm redundancies? Where have I done the same thing with multiple characters and I can bring it down to one? You're right. She's our hacker. There are three other hackers that were given. She has two friends that show up at the beginning and that totally disappear. And then they bring in Anthony Anderson for jokes, I guess. Does he ever do anything with the computer? Ever? I don't think he actually does other than decode at the very beginning. But, Stuart, you're describing the writing process. But let me describe to you what I believe Michael Bay's writing process to be. Is he comes in and looks at the streamlined script and goes, well, we need to add another everyman here. And we need to add another everyman here because if you look at Armageddon and you look at Bad Boys and all these things, all the professionals are always showing up by like the blue collar rogue fly by the seat of their pants types 100% of the time. Yeah. And so this is a Bay thing is we're not going to like the NSA. We're going to like Anthony Anderson because he's going to be silly and we're going to relate to him because he plays video games. And so we can't have the NSA be the heroes. We need them to need Anthony Anderson. Mm. And so I think that this is something that based on his previous films, Bay said, we need to do this. We need to add more characters, more everyday people in, be it the stupid fat kid running down the street going, this is a thousand times better than Armageddon or Anthony Anderson sassing his mama. This is what it is. And either you like the aesthetic or you don't. I personally feel that it can work, but I feel like this movie had too many characters. It had way too many characters. There wasn't one jarhead. There were five jarheads. There wasn't one hacker. There were four hackers. And we're about to get to the freaking robots. We're talking about a robot movie. We've been talking about all the people because the movie does for the first hour. There's way too many robots when we get to them, too, though. I agreed. It's by contrast, the series we just did, X-Men, I felt like it was really streamlined. It had a lot of characters. And in the first movie, it really had one scene to introduce to you who they were, what their powers were, and did a pretty good job in most cases. You know, some people were better than others. Some actors were better than others. And Cyclops kept giving the show. <laughs> Yeah, some characters just never came into bloom, but I felt like I knew who everyone was. Here, I am struggling to even remember who's in the picture and what they're doing. And they even have needless scenes to remind us. The whole second attack in Qatar. So the chopper attacked in the opening scene, but we were going too long without explosions or something. So for a reason that I can only say, is it roll out? The Decepticon comes back to 
finish off the sole survivors of the attack. That scene had no purpose, no place, anything that I could understand other than we've been going too long and we haven't blown anything up because it's been Shia and Megan driving around in Bumblebee. You're talking about the army people getting to the village and suddenly there's a mechanical scorpion shooting at them. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the only thing you could argue is... By attacking that scorpion, they got a piece of his mechanical tail to see what was able to actually hurt his outer surface. Very weak, yes. Okay, but in the course of streamlining, couldn't they have just done that in the very first attack? Oh, sure, (laughs) sure. I mean, we're not even really clear. It's like in the middle of the battle and in that opening scene that the scorpion even pops out of the helicopter. I mean, the helicopter ejects it out to go into the ground. Why is he doing that? It makes no sense. Was he anticipating that a handful of them would escape? It makes no sense. Is it the same Transformer as the helicopter? Did he change into a scorpion? No, no, no. He had that scorpion like inside of him and he ejects them out. Kind of like how Soundwave ejecting the cassettes. I mean, he shot it out to go underground. It came out of the helicopter, but it's not the helicopter. All right, I'm rolling out. And I actually only understand that because the way the toy was packaged. (laughs) I knew it wasn't the helicopter because it didn't look like the helicopter and Transformers. We'll get to a little bit about their forms, but at this point I'm thinking the helicopter never was a scorpion, so it's a new one. It's attacking in a new way, but you want to talk about a scene that could be cut. This whole attack could be cut. I don't know, Arnie. I think it could be rehabilitated. I mean, if what you're saying is true, Jerry, if we were supposed to learn that in this moment they realized how to hurt a Transformer, I wish they had underlined that. I didn't get that out of this scene. It was a lot of noise and comedy bits with an Indian telephone operator. Oh, God, that was bad, too. Did we really need a sociopolitical statement about call center outsourcing? No, we didn't. We needed to underline (laughs) the fact that we're now learning how to hurt the robots. And I wish they had underlined it with bold pen, because that would have made this scene useful rather than just noisy. Well, but there was a follow-up scene where they're specifically analyzing it on the helicopter or plane, whatever's taking them back. I mean, they do talk very specifically about it. You can talk about it or you can demonstrate it. I don't feel like this movie did a good job of demonstrating how it got hurt. I feel like that's a visual thing. I feel like if I had seen that in a way that let me know that this is what this scene was about, I would have gotten something out of the scene. But I was shell-shocked. I'll be honest with you. I'm going to confess something. I watched this movie over two nights because I found the first 45 minutes so bombastic, I couldn't sit through the entire two-hour whatever movie in one sitting. (laughs) It's too much for me. I feel like I need Ridlin to watch this. I know. It kind of reminded me of the original Transformers in that way, too, because for the first hour, it's actually moving too slow for me. It really was. I don't know how you got 45 minutes in and felt it was too much, despite all the noise, all the The racing. the The cutting. It really is an editing thing. There was so much here, here, joke, here. I mean, just like the pacing. The very thing you were saying at the beginning of this podcast that you like as economic storytelling, I found to be convulsive. I was going with that. But the problem was, like I said, we're an hour in and it does start to wear on you because this is a two and a half hour movie. Oh, my God. (laughs) And after the first hour, I am also feeling a little bit tired. But I also realize all I've seen is a couple of car chases and a couple of bad jokes, like a police car that instead of saying to protect and serve, says to punish and enslave. Not even clever. Did it really say that? Yeah, it really did. I like the second attack on Qatar. I wish they had streamlined it. The call center joke got old really quick. Do soldiers carry their credit cards when they're out in the field? I mean, that that was left the thing. Left cheek, hey, Jerry, left cheek. Yeah. 
Who's got a credit card? Oh, I do. Why? Why? So a lot of that I didn't get, but you had to find the soldiers. They had to get rescued. They had to get the information back to the Pentagon. They had to demonstrate that, hey, we know how to hurt these creatures. We can. And I think, Stuart, that they had to say so much of it on, and I'm not, you know, necessarily defending this. They had to say so much of it on the helicopter riding back or the airplane riding back because in the scene, they're saying, hey, throw these 105s, this type of, and I just got so lost in the military jargon that, I couldn't have possibly understood what they heard it with just by the uh, Tyrese Gibson's role. He's an Air Force controller, so his job is to call in the attacks. That's what he does, and I have no idea what he's calling in. I think he was calling in the 110s, wasn't he? Because the 42s didn't hurt it, isn't that what (laughs) they said? Yeah, 42s, use 105, I got lost. 110, 220, whatever it takes. Well, let me ask you this, because this is what I need to know, and I still don't know having watched the entire movie now. What was the magic bullet that got them to hurt the thing? Bigger shells. That's it? Not that it ever matters, because it never comes up again. They are never hurt this way again. No, 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 no. Lennox and his team says that some, I don't remember the jargon, but some heat-inducing bullet, whatever, and that they arm the jets in the planes. He radios in, hey, arm everything with this type of bullet, and they use it. They're doing it at the Sector 7 base. I don't know why they have everything there to do it at Hoover Dam, but they're implementing that. Okay, but they shoot Starscream many times with these special bullets, and Starscream never gets hurt. None of the Decepticons except for Megatron get hurt. No, what I was going to point out was that they make a big point towards the end where Linux does some kind of slide underneath one and shoots it up into (laughs) the crotch, and that's like the thing that kills it so they must have known something what's disappointing is it was just different artillery right like i guess i wanted it to be something smarter something more clever an achilles heel something that they could use and apply kryptonite yeah transformer kryptonite yeah something like that that's fair yeah that's what i really needed to get out of this scene and i feel like that would have helped me later in the movie when there is so much bullets and artillery flying around now see that's fair because i think what we got instead was Michael Bay bragging about how much he knows about the military. And if you read up in some places, there's a lot of inconsistencies and inaccuracies and in the jargon they used anyway. But I think that was Michael Bay saying, hey, I know the Pentagon. And I think that came out there. Your statement's very fair. There could have been a far more cartoony, comic booky way that you could have just latched onto better. This is a very, you know, I think Kryptonite Arnie is a perfect example of what is that equivalent for Transformers? We don't know. Just use a different type of bullet. Not exciting at all. And then we get... I guess comedy with the boombox Decepticon. Is this Soundwave? No, no, that's Frenzy. He's so different. <laughs> he plays CDs and not yeah. cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> no, Frenzy was the name of one of Soundwave's cassettes. The only similarity here really is that he's a smaller than human, human size type transformer that's built for like espionage. The fact that they made him a boombox, I think, is just kind of a minor callback, but no, he's definitely not Soundwave. Because a boom boombox on Air Force One doesn't stand out to people. (laughs) Hey, the president's asking for ding-dongs, okay? (laughs) He obviously left his player in the elevator on Air Force One. Again, whatever your political affiliations, did we really need to see a President Bush sound alike asking for his ding-dongs? Well, it did answer some questions. I can say this much. 
I wonder if Bay doesn't relate to Bush's position. You say that he's always defending the common guy against the smarty pants. Well, wasn't that the George W. Bush two legacy? I mean, yeah, he was just the average Joe that wanted ding dongs and, <laughs> and everyone said he was dumb. I think Bay probably, my guess would be is that he's probably a supporter and that this is not a criticism, this ding dong scene. If anything, it's the airline stewardess that picks up the ho ho and eats it off the ground. It's just a way of letting you know who the president is that is happening in our world. I was appreciative of the fact that they didn't have an actor playing the president. This is happening right now. This is George W. Bush on that plane. And John Voight is Donald Rumsfeld, I guess. I took it as a criticism. I mean, you didn't have him acting like a competent commander in chief. You had him asking for some ding dongs. So I don't know. And he was just spread out with his feet crossed and saying, hey, darling, could you? Yeah, I took it as let's make fun of the guy, actually. I don't see how you couldn't, really. If I was President Bush, I wouldn't have been flattered. (laughs) Let's put it that way. No, admittedly, it (laughs) it doesn't show him in the best light. Let me put it this way. It feels like a gentle ribbing rather than a scabrous, you have failed us as a leader attack. That's because Michael Bay isn't really intelligent about his writing. (laughs) I think this is to Michael Bay biting satire. It could be. Most of the humor here really is pretty sophomoric. I mean, I got to say, some of it might be amusing. I laughed a little bit, but I never felt good about it. Like, I don't feel like this was a smart, savvy movie. I don't think it has to be. It's a movie for the 12-year-old boy and all of us, and that's what I'm trying to enjoy here. So it was a little moment. And the 12-year-old boy and you needed a timeout after 45 minutes. <laughs> I did. I really did. I stood in the corner and cried. But I want to know, who is this movie aimed at? Because it seemed to me a little too much TNA. I mean, it was all clothed, but still, we're supposed to ogle Megan Fox. That's why she's there. She's eye candy. You got the grandma giving the finger. It seemed a little too vulgar for the toy playing set, and yet a little too juvenile for the high school set. I feel like a 12-year-old is right about the age. I mean, that's maybe 13. The onset of puberty, you still play with toys, but you are thinking about other things things. I feel like that's the demographic, but I don't think you have to be that age to get into that mentality. I think that mentality can be appreciated by anyone that wants to go there. Well, and two, I think it does partially go to the kids who enjoyed it back in the 80s because they also severely upped the violence. I mean, you saw Decepticons killing people and you know, you never saw that in the cartoon. As we always joke about G.I. Joe, where everybody's got a helicopter out of the end. That's done. This helicopter began the movie is killing people, slaughtering an entire base worth of soldiers. That's intense. And I'm not saying that 30-year-olds like that in so much as just, hey, this felt very realistic. Like if a giant robot transformed onto humans, they would slaughter them. I'm with you, too. I'm not really sure exactly who the audience is unless it's just let's do a little bit of something for everybody and make everybody like the movie because we got toys on the shelf too yeah we got to sell toys to the 10 year olds (laughs) i'm gonna vote all ages this is for the dad that used to have transformers back in the 80s who is now 20 years older and has young children of their own and wants to get them involved it's not dissimilar to the second coming of star wars i would think i actually took my son to this opening night he was six at the time and there were times i was in embarrassed to have taken him. But at the same time, he was young enough not to get 
the masturbation, not to get the happy time or to even necessarily care why that girl is arching her back. He just said, hey, those robots are really cool the way they're blowing stuff up. Yeah. And it worked. I mean, it, it was fine. I We actually saw it twice together, <laughs> sadly. But just to show my hand a little bit, I refused to take him to the next one. You know, and we'll get to that later. But you will see the evolution of where the movie goes. But this one, I think, just had enough that my son and I both could sit there and both enjoy it for totally different reasons. Now, let's talk about the robots then. Because I think we've talked enough about the humans. The, the movie spends an hour on them, and so have we. So <laughs> the robots finally come. We know Bumblebee's been kind of joking around and trying because Bumblebee wants Shia to get laid. So he's been talking through the radio and there's been this mysterious cop car. We finally get a chase and the two robots go at it. And I am now really enjoying this movie. I love that chase scene where Bumblebee is taking Michaela and Sam running from the police car. I think it's well filmed. I think it's exciting. I think it's a really well done scene. It didn't register one way or another. I'll be honest. I think this was more or less the time that I turned it off for the first night's viewing. And I was zoning out. If I hadn't quite turned it off yet, I was close to it. I wasn't maybe giving this my full brain power. My exact quote when the music starts and Bumblebee is driving away and you get the rock music in the background. My exact quote was, okay, this is where the movie gets going. This is where it gets started. Now we're going to see what the robots are doing. I loved it, too. I thought it was a really good way to make Bumblebee be seem heroic why he's so interested in mikhail i have no idea that was weird there's been a lot of back and forth i mean we're trying to streamline this ourselves and talk about what we like and what we're gravitate but there's been a lot of back and forth about the car's here and then it's gone and it's stolen but it's not i mean like there's been a lot of like herky-jerky going on to get here so it's been a tiresome road to get here, but I agree with you. We're now finally into the meat of the story. Sam knows that his car is a robot. They're trying to run away from more threatening robots. This is where we should be. And then we get even more robots as Michael Bay recycles some leftover extras footage from Armageddon and the Autobots crash into Earth with the subtlety of a Michael Bay film. All right. I need answers. <laughs> Roll out. Where were they? What were they doing? How did he tell them with a light? What is this? Bumblebee phone home. Yeah, but he didn't. That's what he was doing the night he ran away. He went to the junkyard to phone home. That's what I took it as. That's why he transformed to a robot. He was calling out saying, I got Sam. How do I know I needed Sam? Well, don't ask that, but I've got Sam. That's all I could take from it. I don't know why he didn't have a more technologically advanced way of contacting Optimus Prime and the rest other than shining a light, which, okay, that was really weird. It's not like he can talk. I mean, he only speaks in car radio, which is kind of a funny little device, but it's not very helpful <laughs> in this moment. I mean, what do you say? Lionel Richie's hello? <laughs> I mean, what, 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 how do you convert that? You know, like, I wouldn't know how you would convey through pop songs how to get your butt to earth you know he's got to have the moral equivalent of morse code or something they know he can't talk so it's like hey you know click at me twice to let me know that you're whatever three times to stay away twice to come or whatever okay fine that's the method he used why did they send the mute why did they send the one who couldn't talk? <laughs> Why not send Jazz? Why didn't they all go if they sent the cube there? Hey, we could do this all night, guys. All <laughs> night. I, I think. <laughs> anyway, rolling out. Moving on. They're landing. I do think it's kind of funny that the little girl that finds him in the pool is holding a My Little Pony. Nice little 80s homage. <laughs> Yes, but then the line, are you the tooth fairy, just makes me groan and roll my eyes. Yeah, that was dumb. All right, l l let's talk about Transformers now. Autobots? 
Autobots. First of all, Jerry, we were talking earlier, you said how Michael Bay was very proud of the fact that he made them realistic and to scale. And one of the things I know that he said he didn't like about Transformers that we grew up with was their look. He didn't think that cars could really transform into that. So he challenged slash forced the graphic designers to create a totally new Transformer look that actually could be if you took car parts and rearranged them like a weird psychedelic puzzle. But two problems. First of all, am I the only one who had trouble telling them apart? I don't want to be speciest, but all the Transformers looked alike to me. No, they really do. Once they are battling and fighting one another, I have no idea who is who. I know when they're vehicles, because like I said, the American cars are the good guys. But once they are all in their humanoid biped state, I cannot tell one from the other. All I could go on was color, and then there were two yellow ones, and then there were the rest. I could kind of tell Prime, but Jazz and Ironhide and Ratchet and Bumblebee, their primary color was the innards of cars. They were all mostly gray. Certainly the forms that they had when they landed were indistinguishable. I really did not realize that was Ironhide that got out of the pool next to the girl and all that stuff. I thought that was Optimus. No. That was, no. <laughs> that was Ironhide? That was Ironhide. Oh. Yeah, because apparently the dad drives a GMC Topkick, which I don't know who owns a Topkick, by the way, that, you know, the vehicle that he was. But no, that was actually Ironhide. So yeah, in that protoform version or whatever they call that, their Cybertron form, they're completely indistinguishable. I had no problem to telling them apart once they change into their vehicle form. I mean, even as robots, I mean, I thought they're easy to tell apart. I think the fight scenes are really confusing because you're so close up and they're rolling around and moving fast that you can't tell what's happening. But I had no problem telling who was who once they took on their vehicle robot forms. But Jerry, I'm wondering if that might not be because of your bias coming into this. You know this world. Oh, you know these characters. You can recognize them. I wouldn't know one from another in a lineup even now. Like, even if they weren't moving. Yes and no, because these guys look nothing at all, except for Prime. He's a red truck. That's it. The rest of them are completely different. Prime and Bumblebee stand out. The rest of them, I don't think it was important to be able to distinguish them. They are the merry men to the Robin Hood. You know, they're just guys in green tights. They are the supporting characters. I don't need to know who they are. I only need to know they're good. Well, and that's accurate, but like, Ironhide's never been a black truck. I mean, they call him Ironhide. They could have called him Trailbreaker. They could have called him anything else. That's not what Ironhide looked like. So, yes and no and familiarity. Here's my thought when I was watching it. My thought was, you'll have to watch this movie several times, which Jerry has, in order to really get the subtleties of which is who and know who's in each scene. (laughs) I agree. That said, you have to already like the movie to watch it several (laughs) times. So you're not going to convert a skeptic or a newbie to know who these are. You've got to come in already the fan, ready to accept it and to watch it multiple times to get these subtleties. But this was my second time watching it and I really, scene to scene, until they spoke, I thought Prime was talking to Ratchet, and then he goes, let me kill him. Oh, that's Ironhide. Okay. I could tell the voices. I could tell when they were vehicle modes, but when they were walking around and hiding behind bushes, which I have to just yell about in about five minutes, 
I couldn't tell them apart. I just couldn't. And the same thing for the Decepticons in robot mode, fight at the end. I'm seeing CGI creature beat CGI creature. I don't know who's winning, who's losing, who's living, who's dying. They all look the same. The only way I could tell Decepticon from Autobot in those fights is that the Decepticons tend to have uh, pointy jaws. Nothing says evil (laughs) like a pointy jaw. They also had red eyes, I think. But I, I yeah. mean, it's not like they were standing still long enough for me to get the color of their eyes. Correct. And, you know, this may be inherently a problem with anything when you have characters that aren't humans. You know, in X-Men, I said, by comparison, once you establish who they are, all those creatures can show up in one scene and I can tell the good guys from the bad guys. But maybe that's because they're human actors playing them. Here, when they are entirely robotic, computer-generated creatures, I don't have that empathy. I don't know what it would take to give me that empathy. It's not like the special effects artists haven't done a great job. I think they've done a great job with realizing these characters. They look great. They look believable and move and all of that. I buy it, but I don't connect. And I don't know whether that's because Bay hasn't done his job or it's just I'm never going to care about a giant robotic car the way that I would a person. Well, I think where you guys are really right on with this is with the Decepticons. The Decepticons come in so late and out of nowhere. It's just Frenzy finds the cube and they just all come in. And they are very non-distinct. I mean, we don't even meet them, really. I mean, we meet Starscream a little bit, but the rest of them are just, I'm a tank, I shoot things. They're very much lacking a personality, but I thought the Autobots stood out well, and I don't bring baggage into it because they've totally redefined the majority of these characters. I mean, it's just that I guess I just get how the robots distinguish themselves, but they're very different. We at least get to meet the Autobots, which I think was a strength. The Decepticons, they really could be anything and anybody. Well, they're trying really hard to make us like the Autobots, and thus enters more base comedy. Now, this is the scene that the first time I saw the movie, I switched off, and I came into this the second time with an open mind, and the second time I saw the movie, this is where I realized I'm an old man, is the Autobots are trying to hide from the Witwickies by staying off the lawn, and the Autobots don't get it, and I'm like, you know what? I probably loved this when it was Data and Mouth and Mikey and Goonies, because I was 11. But as a 30-some-year-old man, I'm just not getting that how you hide a 50-foot robot. I got that Elliot could hide E.T. because E.T. was tiny. How do you hide a 50-foot robot? It was stupid. It was dumb. Well, yes, it's dumb, but you have to realize that these are comedy bits. They're not asking us for the believability of it. And they really turn these parents into caricatures. I mean, at no point ever are the parents in a dramatic scene. Whenever they are there, they are always stupid. They are both trying to out Eugene Levy each other, right? (laughs) I mean, the whole thing that they're doing here is a retread of American Pie. I took them more as the Cunningham parents for the 2000s (laughs) is how I interpret them. Never anything to take seriously, but they played off each other really well. And I didn't mind the scene in the house except that it was just too long. Yep, Optimus wants them to find the glasses. Well, I can't find the glasses because you guys are bugging me. We'll find the glasses. Well, I can't because, okay, fine. Just find the freaking glasses. I mean, it was just too long. I didn't mind what they did, but that was a scene they could have cut in half easily. I don't mind that the parents never saw the giant robots in the lawn because that's the kind of oblivious characters they're portrayed as. But when the Section 7 people show up in the suits and somehow they've managed to run away 
when we're brought back into the believable, quote-unquote, part of the movie, that's where it becomes problematic. When they're hiding from military men that know that they're here and what they are, I feel like, A, if you're Transformers, why are you even giant robots? Why don't you stay vehicles? Be a little bit more of a disguise. Here's my other problem, is I didn't like that Transformers could transform into anything by scanning it. That seems to take away from something for me. You know, it's like Autobots were what they were built to be, but Optimus Prime was a truck, but he could have just scanned a plane, right? And become a plane or scanned a mailbox and become a mailbox, right? Bumblebee does it. He would be mystique. He wouldn't be defined by what was the physiology of that particular machine unfolding. He could be anything. And that's a cheat. I agree, Arnie. It's a cheat. It is a cheat, but at the same time, that is in the very first episode of the cartoon 1984, they just scan an Earth vehicle and become that. I think there's some rules unwritten about size and mass. I mean, I don't think Optimus Prime could become a mailbox because he's much bigger than that. But you're right. It's one of those things like, let's just get this out of the way and not make it an issue. Hey, everybody, they can just scan and be whatever they want. So roll out. So roll out. I'm getting tired of rolling out at this point. I'm just going to say that, though. <laughs> the tires are really wobbly. Yeah. I agree. I was enjoying the action, but I just, when they can turn into anything by scanning it and touching it, and when Frenzy turns into the cell phone, his head pops off and his head becomes a cell phone, I'm just starting to realize this is a universe with no rules. And I'm not liking that. Oh, Arnie, you're hitting it for me. I need there to be rules. I will accept very loose, non-reality-based rules. I need a consistency. And it is starting to feel like, ah, it'll be whatever it needs to be in the moment. It's feeling lazy. I get that Bumblebee needed to not be a POS for the whole trip, but the fact that he could just do a Knight Rider, I'm driving on two wheels move to scan a better Camaro and then become a better yellow Camaro was dumb. Here's what it is. I feel like if they had made that the scanning process was committing to a monogamous relationship, I could go with it. Which is what I felt. Again, like I said, I watched the first episodes of Transformers before our first podcast. That's what it was, is the computer scanned, and it was saying, we are going to reconfigure you for this. But it seemed at least like a tattoo, where if you undo it, it's at least going to take some time and money to undo it. Yeah, what's your committed to being the microscope you're the microscope and even if everyone else is a cool car and can do much better than you you have to be the microscope right yes i don't know it's too willy-nilly it's just too ungainly for them to be able to scan whatever they may be i mean then it opens whole lots of things about well can they be life forms did they scan a scorpion to be the scorpion can they be animals why was that thing a giant scorpion? What did he scan? Yeah, I agree. And I don't have spare tires to roll out on. <laughs> this is it. And at this point, we are an hour and a half into the movie, and I'm just realizing that this isn't cohesive enough to me. Despite Spielberg's name being somewhere in these credits, this is way too much Bay, and not good Bay. 21st century Bay, not that good 20th century vintage Bay I like so much. Well, they try to bring us back to a little bit of Spielberg feeling because Bumblebee gets caught by the scientist. Oh, boy. Just like E.T. and they're torn apart from his friend and they're in captivity. And this is, I guess, where they're bringing all of the various storylines into one movie at this point. And yeah, 
90 minutes into it, we're introduced to second Bill John Turturro. I'd forgotten he was in this film. I like John Turturro in so much stuff. My mind goes immediately to Monk, where he played Monk's older brother. But The Big Lebowski, Anger Management, even these movies I don't like, I like him in. I think of John Turturro as a man that has done primarily Coen Brothers and Spike Lee movies. But here, I feel like... He is doing to his legacy what Bumblebee does to him. Oh. He pisses on him. <laughs> I don't think it's that bad. <laughs> I don't know. I can say this. I feel like this was a character to not be funny. Like, we have so many jocular, needling-you-in-the-ribs kind of characters with Anthony Anderson and all. Couldn't we have one guy who the joke is everything is serious to him? Like, why does he have to be a buffoon as well? I feel like it's miscasting. I feel like John Turturro was not the head of your secret organization. It needed to be a Tommy Lee Jones. It didn't need to be a Will Smith. See, my thing with John Turturro in this is that I actually liked him. I thought he performed well, but it seemed like the character of Simmons became much a buffoon later on. Like once Bumblebee peed on him, he was a totally different character. I loved him in the house, the way he was talking to the parents. Sir, I am asking politely. I really enjoyed that, like, I'm the slick government agent guy and I'm just trying to play you so I can end up doing what it is I'm going to do anyway. Once he starts interrogating Michaela and starts talking, you know, hey, you in the training bra, and then everything from there. Especially the way he interacts with John Void. I'm just like, man, this character's changed. I liked him in the first five minutes, but he's become a different person, a buffoon that I'm just supposed to laugh at. And then suddenly we're all friends again. And I don't know why they arrest Sam and Michaela a second time just to say, hey, we're going to take you to Hoover Dam and explain everything to you. I don't think that he changed. I got buffoon from scene one, from the way he was playing it. It gets more broad and more obvious when he loses control. But in those scenes, yeah, I wanted somebody competent working for the government. From President Bush on down, every government employee has been shown to be idiotic, except for support our troops. So here's the question, Arnie, for you. Is Bay just incapable of seeing figures of authority as anything other than assholes? Like, is that the problem? No, because in Armageddon, you had Billy Bob Thornton as the NASA guy on Earth who was the ground crew, but he was the honorable ground crew. Sure, he was played by Billy Bob, so you get a bit of that everyman quality, but he was also incredibly intelligent. He was disabled, so he couldn't go up in space, even though that was his dream. You got a huge bit of camaraderie between Bruce Willis and him. Bay could do it, but I don't know why he didn't hear, but his instinct to make every single authority figure ridiculous was a wrong one, because it felt like like I'd seen this before. He played the same note too often in a row in this movie. Yeah, I was tired of him. I didn't think he was funny. I just didn't think it was a good fit for Totoro. And I really wanted to like Sector 7. I did. I wanted it to be this great X-Files-ish Area 51, we investigate aliens type thing. I wanted more of an E.T. feel. Mm -hmm. I didn't get it. No. But I wanted it. If they were going to be a joke at all, it needed to be the joke was that they had no sense of humor. I don't know. I feel like once it was time to reveal the curtain, it's so laughable, you can only play it as delusion. But can we, at this point, talk about when the curtain parts and we finally understand what the government understands about the AllSpark and the Transformers? Because I feel like we're all going to roll out at this point, right? The whole theater has to roll out. <laughs> Hoover had the dam built 
to hide a robot they found frozen in the Arctic in 1897. When did Megatron get here again? Keep in mind, it was more to hide the cube, which landed, I presume, in place where we saw it. And Megatron was just taken there. Yeah. Later. Right. Because if you wanted to keep something on ice, you don't bring it to the desert. (laughs) And how in the 1800s did they keep him frozen (laughs) for the trip? A lot of salt. They put him in the ice box. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. All right. So the kryptonite to Transformers is we can freeze them. And so they kept spraying... It looked like fire extinguishers on Megatron because, I mean, you'd think that one of the first things they do would be, let's thaw them out and see what happens, right? Yeah, what they're doing to Bumblebee. If they're carving into Bumblebee, they would have already done this to Megatron. Jerry, this is where you defend it. (laughs) Sadly, I can't. I mean, how they get him out of the ice, the way he's buried deep. I mean, you go in those flashbacks. I mean, he is well in the ice. How they get him out, how they keep him frozen, how they get him there, you know, makes no sense. As much as I enjoy this movie, there are lots of logic issues. You've just got to either find the film fun or not find it fun. And this is one that you, yeah, you just, you don't know. We've reverse engineered all the coolest technologies we have in the world from Megatron, how they've kept him. Okay, yeah, no, no, wait, 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 that's the next point. So I'm to understand that the Model T and most appliances... Our entire 20th century is based on this frozen robot from the Arctic. Thankfully for Megatron, we now have the toaster. Yeah, I mean, okay, whatever. Wow. (laughs) I got one. The glasses that Megatron imprinted something on. Were they pointing to where Megatron was in the Arctic? Were they pointing to where the cube was in the Hoover Dam? The whole freaking first half of the movie, they're like, I want the glasses. The glasses never point anyone anywhere, do they? Yes. I'm so needing to understand the glasses bit. Please, anyone that can speak to this, speak now. Okay, I'm not saying this is great, but... That's fine. What apparently was imprinted on the glasses was the coordinates of where Megatron was heading. Optimus Prime does use those coordinates to say, hey, the cube is 230 miles northwest from here, or whatever he says. And then the agent later says that Megatron's descent to Earth, he must have got thrown off by a gravitational pull and landed elsewhere. Why that gets imprinted on the glasses in a way that you can read them later, I don't understand at all and and cannot possibly defend. So the cube fell in the desert where they built the dam. And Megatron would have gone to the desert, but he went to the Arctic. And while he was doing this, freezing or not, an explorer came up and he shot into his glasses the coordinates because that's helpful to... You take that, but that's just... The last thing that was in Megatron's memory banks or whatever, and that was an accident. Megatron wasn't trying to give it to him. Archibald Wiggy just just triggered it somehow. I mean, they even described that. Megatron wasn't trying to get somebody to go get the cube for him. (laughs) Okay. All right. See, I didn't know. I had no idea. I really did not understand this in a big way. But here's the thing, though. So I do remember Optimus, like, picking up the glasses because I'm like, wow, he's being really delicate. And he goes, it's 263 miles northeast from here. But then the Sector 7 guys drive him there. It's not like they discover anything off of this. No, wait a minute. The Sector 7 guys drive who there? 
They don't drive Optimus. No, but they drive Bumblebee and Sam and everything. Sector 7's obviously hiding it. They know where it's at, but Optimus and the other Autobots, they're on their own trying to piece it together. I mean, they couldn't possibly get that information from Sector 7. And they couldn't possibly, you know, transform into something to follow Sam. (laughs) Well, here's my greater problem with this, Arnie, is those were the coordinates of where it was at that moment in 1897. We are now in 2007, and you're telling me that the cube hasn't moved an inch? Nobody's ever thought to take it anywhere else that the coordinates are still relevant a hundred years later? Well, it did seem pretty set in stone. No pun intended there. It was it was buried deep. Well, yeah, that's why they built everything around it, I presume, where it landed. Okay, so it was easier to build around it than to excavate it and move it to a laboratory that already existed. I'll go with it. You know what? I'll go with that. I just needed someone to say that out loud. I think the point of it was, even if you moved it, you were still buried it under something. They were trying to hide it. The one agent describes it to the kids for some reason that they built the seven miles worth of concrete around it so that you couldn't pick up its energy signal. That's one damn good hiding place. Well, sure. (laughs) I'm not going to get tired of these damn puns. Quite literally, yes. So, wait. Actually, Megatron isn't the origin of all the machines. The cube is. No, Megatron is. No, the cube is. No, Megatron is. They have Megatron there on ice, and he goes, this is the source of our technology for the past hundred years. Wait a minute, no! They told us in the beginning the AllSpark made all of the Megatrons! Well, you guys are saying two different things. AllSpark created the Transformers. Megatron's the origin of the Earth's technology. That's terrible writing! (laughs) Oh, sure! You have the cube! Oh, sure! Sure, 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 sure. If the cube made it on another world, you have it make it on this world. That's horrible. Here's what I hate, okay? I hate that the humans could funnel radiation off of the cube, point it at a Nokia cell phone. It has to be Nokia because Nokias are, you know, evil. They actually say that. And then the Nokia telephone, which is descended from technology on Megatron, comes to life. All right. I got to know some things here, and maybe I need to roll out, but this is bothering me. First of all, why is it every machine the cube turns into a sentient machine is evil? Because the plot, as we're told it, I thought this whole thing was going to go back to the whole war on Cybertron. But what Optimus says is Megatron wants to kill all the humans by using the cube to turn all of your machines into robots that will kill you. Why does the AllSpark not create Good robots. Where'd the Autobots come from? Right. It did create good robots. You're right, because we have Autobots. Why is it now the pet cemetery for robots? I'm totally with you. Why did the cell phone have to emerge as its new self blasting lasers? That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, a lot of people after this movie came out asked that same question. Why does the Xbox blow things up? Or, you know, why is it attacking people? Why does the Mountain Dew vending machine start attacking people? Why does the cell phone do it? And the retconning, oh, the reason must be is because all those things were descended from Megatron. So it instinctively has bad, evil genes. Ah. But to your point, how is Megatron doing that if he comes to Earth, you know, to take the machines that may or may not already exist? I mean, obviously, we did have some machines there, but we didn't have it to the degree that we have now. The evil steam engine that they went to Cybertron on last movie. (laughs) How is Megatron going to use this tool? We have no idea. Okay. And I got it that Megatron came to Earth to get the cube. 
But now we're told he came to Earth just to kill all us humans. What does he have against us? Other than we kept him on ice. I didn't actually gather that he was looking to kill humans necessarily. Did did Optimus say that specifically? Optimus said that specifically. And then in the final fight, Megatron says, humans don't deserve to live. And Optimus replies, they deserve to decide for themselves. Leaving me to go decide what? Who's the idiot who's going, yeah, I don't want to (laughs) live. This is all headache inducing at this point. And you know what? I think it's a lot to put onto any movie to try and explain all of this. I'm willing to shut that off and go forward. I would just like to ask one more question. They sold this movie originally. The only thing I remember about the advertisement of this movie was the Mars probe. And Mars probes going around and then some machine comes up and destroys it. And that was, it's in this movie too, the footage and all of that. What did that have to do with anything? Who was the robot that even destroyed the Mars probe? Actually, that, not that the movie tells us this, but that was actually supposed to be Starscream. Because a lot of these Decepticons were hiding on the moon trying to figure out what to do next. Um, that's explained elsewhere. The moon's nowhere near Mars, by the way, but okay. Got <laughs> oh, it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was, yeah. Okay. This hurts. This hurts, folks. I want to say it hurts to watch this movie at this point. My thinking is when they marketed this movie, the tagline was their war, our world. They actually took that. It was an unused aliens versus predator tagline. <laughs> But they used it for this movie. I would have preferred it if we were just caught in the crossfire. I didn't like that we were the targets of Megatron's plan because it made no frickin' sense. And you know what, Arnie? I never even picked up on that. It could have been said. I always thought we were collateral damage. I always thought that Megatron wanted to start a war with his machines and that we, by proxy, would all be killed because, you know, we rely so much on technology. I could see why you'd ignore it. I wish I'd ignored it. But it was said two or three times that Megatron wants us all dead, and I don't know why he wants us at all. To that point, I was never convinced by Optimus Prime's rally behind humans either, that uh, they see goodness in them. I mean, really? Like, you're trying to build your own world, and you'd rather hang out with us at the end of the movie than go back and rebuild your planet? Listen, even the Autobots wanted to see Megan Fox get naked in the back of Bumblebee. (laughs) Because that's what they're doing at the end, you know? They're all standing around watching (laughs) Shia and Megan make out. <laughs> They're voyeurs. The movie would have made a lot more sense if the plot was Megatron just wants to get the AllSpark and leave. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why the line was dropped that to turns Earth machines into a new army. That's the part I picked up on. I didn't really pick up that he's here to kill humans other than the fact that, well, now that I'm here, I'm just going to squash these insects just like a four-year-old wants to step on an ant for some reason. That I gathered, but I didn't get that that was his plan in so much as that I want to turn Earth's machines into my new army. Because apparently there's nothing left on Cybertron. That's what I took away from. Uh, You know, as the non-Transformers fan, I can see how I would have needed some kind of link to make me see where my stakes are in this. If it were about two different types of robots that don't like each other and they want to beat each other, that was called Rock'em Sock'em Robots. I played it when I was a kid, and I don't play that anymore. We needed to see where we fit into this, and it needed to involve human annihilation. I just don't think they began to address how that really works in any coherent way. And as the fan of G1 Transformers returning to this playground, I don't see why they couldn't use what they did in G1 and make that work. Why couldn't they be trapped on Earth and need to get back? The AllSpark's a great MacGuffin for them to chase after, but why not along the way 
Megatron goes, we need an army because in the thousand years I've been here, Autobots have Cybertron, so I'm going to turn all the machines. Give him a reason for something. I agree. Like, with bringing up the Mars probe, I really thought they were going to tell us that if they had found the cube and brought it back to Earth, if something like that had happened, if we had gotten involved in their business, I could go with it. But because we didn't take your problems and go somewhere else with it, it does not relate to my earthly matters one iota. So now, as if there weren't enough characters between the hackers, the jarheads, the Sector 7 people who just got introduced, the civilians... Now, we're all bringing everybody together at the Hoover Dam, as well as not one, not two, not three, but six new Transformers. And I got a question. The reason why Megatron comes to life is because the dam loses power, right? Yes. Yes, 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 it is. But didn't they already tell us that there was a global blackout already? Like, much earlier in the day? I think that was more just communications and signals, but not that necessarily power was out. I mean, Starscream is the one that blows up their power source. He lands, shoots a few rockets, and that's where everything goes to pot. Okay, because I thought there was a global blackout. That was a line that led me to believe that. Granted, there's a lot of jargon being bandied about, and I'm not going to pretend that I understood everything that was being said, but I thought they told me there was already a power out that was global-wide. So, no. It was just a communications problem. That's what I walked away with. Although there are some funny scenes at the final battle where people are clearly using their cell phones where they shouldn't be able to. But I thought that, too. I'm like, wait, they just said it didn't work, and now they're making calls. The retcon is, no, those are people trying to make calls, and they're wondering why they can't get through. (laughs) That's not how it plays. Oh, no, no, you're right. You're right. That is really poor retconning. So Megatron thaws out. His first words are... I am Megatron. <laughs> and joins his friends. Has to announce it, yes. Yes. <laughs> to prove that Sam was right when him and Agent Simmons have the back and forth between NBE1 and Megatron. That's what they call him. So what happens next? All I can tell you is that I thought someone said we have to get 20 miles away to go do something, right? Yeah, what the plan is, Megatron's coming to, we have to get the cube out of here, there's a nearby city, let's go there, radio wave a military pickup to get the cube out of here. For what it's worth, that's the plan. Yeah, what I specifically remember is 20 miles. Maybe I'm not supposed to pick up on it, but this battle is clearly happening in downtown L.A., which is <laughs> four to five hours drive away from Las Vegas and Hoover Dam. Admittedly, yeah, if this was supposed to be taking place in Vegas, there would have been some neon signs and some glitz yeah. and glitter. And there is no city around Las Vegas or Hoover Dam with that freeway system or that downtown structure. That is downtown L.A. That can only be, to me, downtown L.A. So somehow the 20 miles got a little bigger. So Lennox says specifically, let's take it to Mission City. It's 20 miles away. You take it that it's a small little city that hardly anybody knows about, and we can just get them a military copter plane, whatever, just to do a pickup of the cube. I wish that I didn't know what I knew about Los Angeles, because (laughs) I cannot accept what I see in the climax as being anywhere else but Los Angeles. But I will, because, you know... If this movie does nothing else right, and I'm not sure it does, (laughs) it has some spectacular moments of action in this final 40, 45 minutes. (laughs) In the final 45 minutes action scene. (laughs) Yes. 
<laughs> yes. Here's the problem, though. I'll admit that I liked some of it. There's the scene where, like, Starscream is being chased by planes, and he's converting from robot to plane, all while in motion. Very visually cool. But my God, first of all, there was so much of it. It went on for so long. And again, I didn't know who was who. There's one scene where a Decepticon that I don't know rips an Autobot that I don't know in half. And I'm like, who died? And can't Ratchet just put them back together? And later on, they go, Jazz could not be repaired. That was Jazz. I had to wait a half an hour to know that. Wait a minute. You didn't realize when that happened that that was Megatron and Jazz? That was Megatron that ripped them in half. (laughs) I think I knew it was Megatron. I did not know it was Jazz. Okay. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I'll put it more succinctly, guys. At that point, the movie stops being about characters at all. It is purely destruction (laughs) pornography for me. I am truly just enjoying this only as wow look at them decimate that building look at them tear that apart i don't know a single character i don't (laughs) want to know a single character i know eventually this will all stop and the good guys will win and that's all i am paying attention to is the rendering of this mass destruction and you know what it's pretty good i haven't seen any other michael bay movies but i'm willing to bet that he can (laughs) blow stuff up real good and it's true he can this film is a technological marvel the camera work the special effects, the sound effects on my home theater. I actually paused this movie three times thinking that I had like a mouse or something during some of the frenzy scenes because the sound was so subtle and surrounding. I really <laughs> thought like my puppy had gotten loose, but I really was fighting as hard as the robots were fighting each other i was fighting this movie to tell me what was going on and i was trying to get my fingernails in on who was doing what and finally i just couldn't tell them apart and i too wasn't as forgiving as you Stuart. i'm like yeah it would be exciting but i wish i could give a crap and the only thing i had to cling to were the few scenes of shia trying to make it to the rooftop because there was a character I could recognize. And I was even happy to see the jarheads again. The underdeveloped jarheads come back. And I'm like, yes, characters who I can recognize the face of. There's a whole lot happening. And yet nothing really is dramatically happened. For 45 minutes, I feel like I experienced nothing so much as sound and fury. And I just try to ride the roller coaster. It's the most cliched metaphor for a summer action movie, but that's all this can be at this point. It is not a story about characters trying to achieve things. It is purely, at this moment, a spectacle. And a pretty amazing one. I'll give you that. I still found enjoyment in this last 40 minutes, even though, as a movie climax, almost nothing satisfying happened. You know what Shakespeare said about a tale full of sound and fury that signifies nothing, right? Did he say that it was Transformers? (laughs) Yeah, that's what Shakespeare said, Stuart. (laughs) (laughs) He's right. I like him. I like that Billy Shakespeare. I think this final scene is a lot of fun. I mean, There's a lot of bad logic. I don't understand why these Decepticons can't blow up and slaughter things like Blackout did in the opening movie. I mean, there seems like too many times where people are standing around talking, contemplating, trying to rescue Bumblebee, maybe just putting up a car as a shield and they just get bounced away. So I don't understand why they're less powerful here. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have much of a fight scene. It would just be who gets their one shot off first and blows up the rest of them. But it's a lot of fun. It's just visually stimulating. I recognize all the robots. I can keep them straight. At least the Autobots. The Decepticons, again, my problem with Decepticons is they came in too late. I don't know who's who, and I don't care. I mean, Optimus Prime kills the one I think that was called Brawl. He takes one shot. They fight a little bit. And by the way, I really hate how they 
try to take the two robots, to your point, Arnie, the two robots that are like fist fighting and has the camera like right up in their grill. That is a point where I wish they had taken the camera back a little bit and let me see it almost more in a video game sort of way, what these two are doing to each other. And then close up just when Optimus gets that final shot in to, to kill the one Transformer. I don't know why they did it the way they did, but those parts were kind of confusing. But overall, it was just a lot of fun because now we just see a bunch of robots fight. And that's the point of the movie, guys. I agree. This is the point of this movie. It didn't have to be, but it is the point of this movie. And it is quite a spectacle. I can give you that. I mean, I'll go this far. This movie lost the visual effects Oscar to the Golden Compass. And that <laughs> is just because the Academy couldn't bear to give Michael Bay an Oscar. I mean, that's got to be it, right? They just couldn't bear. Come on, people. These are the best visual effects of that year. There's no denying it. This is an incredible visual work. Absolutely. But, Jerry, you said this is what the movie's about. I'm sorry. I am now playing defender of the modern aesthetic and junk cinema. But I demand more. I want more than just rock'em, sock'em robots, like Stuart said earlier. I want to know why the robots are fighting. I want to know which robot is fighting when and why and who and what the stakes are for us. I'd like a little bit of suspense on the side of my robot fight porn. So it's what this movie's about, but that ain't good enough. It just isn't. It really isn't. If that's what this movie's going to be about, hand me the joystick. Yeah, I can see that. And I don't play video games, but it was feeling very much like a video game joystick to me. Here's one thing that would have helped for me as a person that may never really relate to these Transformers. Here's where you tell us what the human stakes are. And they kind of get at that. They have one scene where Sam's running around and he keeps bumping into things with the cube and they come alive and the steering wheel. <laughs> yes, every single sponsor they have gets a Transformer now. Yeah, well, but you know what? It's also telling us something important that this thing, if in the wrong hands, could be really bad for us. You know, Paris Hilton has the steering wheel attached to her face and, you know, they have all these despicable characters get hurt. Nobody we think is a good person actually gets hurt, but we see some humans fall into harm's way because of the allspark and because of Sam's clumsiness. I thought they could have done more with that. I think they should have done more with that. I think we needed to see Megatron use the allspark to do what he wanted to do. He needed to unleash his plan. The one thing I'll say here is that I can't wait till next week's discussion of Transformers 2. <laughs> Because this is going to be amped up big time. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. Should I go get my air hose and fill the tire? Let's put it this way. If you had to watch this movie in two settings, Stuart, <laughs> you might want to start watching the next one tonight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, all right. Let's get down to it. I mean, this is what scares me. I've heard what fans of one think of two. Rarely do sequels improve. If now playing proves anything, it proves that that's a rare beast. So, I don't know what's in store. But let's finish this off first. So, Sam gets to the roof. Megatron offers to let him live in exchange for the AllSpark. Sam says no and shoves the cube in his chest. All right, I'm angry. <laughs> because Optimus Prime has been like, If I have to, I will destroy it by putting it in me. And then, like, they put it in the other guy. Well, duh. <laughs> like, why would you even put that on the table? Oh, better idea. Why don't you kill him? Yeah, got it. Apparently, it took the human Sam to put two and two together there. Right. 
And now we are forever in your debt, Sam. I'm like, wow, really? Because you're that dumb. Okay. Was I the only one who was thinking like that all spark was going to be like the matrix of leadership? And I was taking this as Optimus might die, but it could also turn him into super Optimus. That's what <laughs> I thought was going to happen is he was willing to try to sacrifice himself. You know, only he who is worthy could harness the all spark. And then Optimus becomes, you know, Optimus Prime the way Hot Rod became Rodimus Prime, I thought he was going to be making the ultimate sacrifice only to become more powerful and thus be able to defeat Megatron. So when Sam shoves it into Megatron's chest and Optimus is saying, Sam, no, I'm thinking we're getting Super Megatron now. No, wait, the movie's just over. I am also angry. Well, and clearly the movie has established that the AllSpark fixes things like Frenzy. I don't know if you guys picked up on the fact that Frenzy is this little cell phone spider-like thing. He comes in contact with the AllSpark and he is rebuilt into his original form. So I don't know why when Bumblebee touches it, his voice isn't automatically fixed. I don't know why shoving it in your chest doesn't add to you versus taking away. I mean, maybe because it's in direct contact with that spark in his chest, whatever. There's clearly things that's not described there, you know, in the movie that we don't get, but they had to end it somehow and you kill the bad guy, right? I mean, it's very cliche. Yes. And the some how to do it is that you have a character defeat Megatron. You don't have something like, oh, a magic cube. And if I touch you, you die. That's no, it needed to be a battle. And if it's going to be Sam and I support the idea that's got to be Sam, it's got to be Sam doing something that he's learned through the course of the movie, maybe with Bumblebee. If he did a sacrifice, even that would have a pay or overcame something. If he was afraid of heights. Yeah. <laughs> had to climb something. Oh, come on. You know, something. <laughs> no, it's true. It comes so easily. It's just Das Ex Machina, which maybe you need Machina <laughs> in a Transformers movie, but I just feel like... It's a whole movie about the God Machine. It really is. And I just feel like so little attention was paid to story. It's too bad that we didn't have more Spielberg here. I really do feel like the machines won and that the heart loses out in this battle. So the very final scene, when Robot's giving his little speech saying humans are more than meets the eye and they're all being perverts in disguise watching Sam make out, isn't it weird to make out on top of your best friend? <laughs> <laughs> it's a three-way. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know they were so kinky. Even from my very first viewing of this film, that's the first thing that went in my head. I mean, you know, Bumblebee must be like crying on the inside. Like, I just want to leave. <laughs> or he's enjoying it. No, he's enjoying it he could have left he's like no i'll stay behind and yeah. <laughs> uh, uh help you out so in the sequel when he's using some armor all on his interior he's just cool with that he's just fine with sam abusing him because that can't be good for the hood he wouldn't be the first to think of that arnie all right well i guess this leaves <laughs> jerry stewart do you recommend transformers jerry you know i will admit in listening to you guys talk, it did confirm something for me. I was curious how a, oh, maybe not the biggest fan or even someone who's familiar with Transformers would react to this. I didn't really know because I walk into this understanding the universe. Even if this is Bayformers, there are certain things that he stuck to. There's a handful of G1 references that I appreciate, even some direct quotes. I don't know if you guys caught it. The one will stand, one will fall directly from the last movie to where I really enjoyed this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. It is filled with logic issues. It is filled with things that I know could be written better. 
But I walked into this movie when I saw it back in 2007, really not having high expectations because I just could not fathom how you could do this well live action. You guys may argue otherwise, but when I first saw it, I thought it was a lot of fun. I wanted to go see it again. I've probably seen this movie a dozen times. And when it first came out on DVD, I had it on day one. When it came out on Blu-ray, I had it on day one. So I have a lot of fun with this movie. I would absolutely recommend it. If you can just watch a movie for the fun action that takes place, you're not going to get logic. You're going to scratch your head about some things. But at the end, I think you're going to enjoy the experience. So I absolutely recommend it. Stuart. Well, I have survived my first Bane experience, and it did confirm a lot of the stereotypes that I'd heard about him. I do feel like he puts action before all else, and I feel to the detriment of things like story, character, pacing. To me, he makes films that I'm not very interested in. That said, I don't hate Michael Bay, and I don't hate this movie. It's just not for me. And I feel like... There is some fun here. I did get some kicks out of watching these anonymous robots beat the crap out of each other, but I didn't get what I get out of a good movie. And so I can't recommend this as a movie. I can recommend it as a video special effects primer. It shows us what we can do with technology. And I think that's impressive. But no, I'm going to say not recommend. Not a strong not recommend, but definitely not a recommend. Much better than the cartoon. But they still haven't convinced me that there's more than meets the eye. I'm going to go pretty strong not recommend on this. And really, I wanted to come out of this saying recommend because I do like some of the early Bay works. I think something happened around Pearl Harbor. He got highfalutin ideals and then just became so secular and cut off that he stopped making good movies. But The Rock, Armageddon... Bad Boys, I like these films. I like the Bay style when done right and a good balance of character and action. And I came into this really hoping that this would be a great film about Transformers that could remind me of my childhood and take me back to what I loved about Transformers that captured my imagination as a child when I was watching the cartoons and playing with the toys. I think you could make that Transformers movie. This isn't it. This film is a relentless assault on the senses and my intelligence. (laughs) I could see why people would enjoy this film, but I don't. (laughs) And so, no, not recommend. You left me no choice, brother. Not recommend. So, Stuart, Jerry, thank you for suffering through, I mean, watching this with me. (laughs) Again, I want to say I didn't suffer. I didn't suffer for this. You couldn't even do it in one sitting. All right. It was hard. It wasn't workout. (laughs) I did have to mop the brow. And I will watch it again and again. (laughs) But it wasn't as agonizing as, I don't know, some of these things I've had to watch. Like, say... (laughs) Man thing. (laughs) Or, say, Green Lantern, which will be uh, reviewing for our special because you voted for it podcast look for that one man do i wish we had done super eight and we will be back next week as we watch transformers revenge of the fallen could it fall any further we'll find out we'll be back then till all over Races united by a history long forgotten and a future we shall face together. 
I am Optimus Prime, and I send this message so that our pasts will always be remembered. For in those memories, we live on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Transformers Movie Retrospective Series. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. Remember to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Transformers film leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's Transformers Dark of the Moon. Never seen anything like this before. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Terminator, X-Men, Star Trek, Predator, and many more, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar, Inception, Howard the Duck, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Your, your friends will love it. Sure, it's a lot of fun. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Transformers movies with other listeners. Are you not surprised to see us? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. We are here. We are waiting. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I owe you my life. We are in your debt. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. Just ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Like us, there's more to them than meets the eye. Now Playing's Transformers Retrospective Series is edited by Jerry, Carlos, and Arnie. Did you know it was going to be this can, hard? Can you just stop? Now Playing is not affiliated with Hasbro Incorporated, Paramount Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, or 20th Century Fox. Not a word until we get a lawyer. Transformers and all that the Transformers universe contains is the property of Hasbro Incorporated and no infringement is intended. Okay, so what? I've, I've downloaded a couple of thousand songs off the internet. Who has it? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. There's something a little fishy about you, your son, your little Taco Bell dog and this whole operation you got going on here. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. Come on, showtime's over. We've got work to do. Jerry, were you masturbating again? <laughs> That's something for a guy and his father. No, I'm sorry. Poor Bumblebee. Poor Hood. I think, yeah, that's kind of... Can That's you, kind of gross, but we'll get to it. Can you can you wash that hood enough? I'm just saying. Isn't that what Sam's mom thought he was doing in the room, washing that hood? <laughs> if you catch my meaning. So. Armageddon has its very funny moments. This is how you deal with Russian Space Station! You can't cut that out. I got the accent too right. So <laughs> and yeah, 90 minutes into it, we're introduced to second Bill John Turturro. I'd forgotten he was in this film. I like John Turturro. I've liked him in so many things I've seen him in. Brain Donors, episodes of Monk. 
<laughs> I love that I can be agreeing with you on something, and then when you go to name their things that have warmed your heart, I'm like, oh my god, I would never watch that. Like, I think <laughs> of John Turturro as a man that has done primarily Coen Brothers and Spike Lee movies. Like, I don't think of him as a comedian, per se. I think of him as a character, but not necessarily a brain donor. Jesus, Arnie, really? I can't believe anybody else <laughs> saw that movie. I love it. I know. Really? Two people? I'm in a minority of brain donors right now? No, probably not. I love the Marx Brothers movies, is why I appreciated what brain donors was trying to do. Okay. Well, I'm not going to disparage the Marx Brothers, but I'm not going to see that movie either. <laughs> All right. Anyway, John Turturro, here we go. 